Sleigh bells ring Are you listening? In the lane Snow is glistening A beautiful sight We're happy tonight Walking in a winter wonderland Gone away Is the bluebird Here to stay Is a new bird He sings a love song As we go along Walking in a winter wonderland In the meadow we can build a snowman And pretend that he is Parson Brown He'll say, are you married? We'll say, no man But you can do the job when you're in town Later on we'll conspire As we dream by the fire Along with Blue Belly Tom Crawford, I'm Ryan Schuling. You're listening to the Great Lakes Divide podcast, and it's brought to you each and every time out by the Record Lounge in Rio Town. Occasional video features that Tom shoots from there will show you inside the Record Lounge. Expanded space. They have new frontage there at the Rio Town Marketplace. It's on Washington, south from 496, downtown Lansing, on the east side of the street. They've got parking. You can park right out in front, walk right in. Very low-pressure sales situation. Look for what you want if you you can't find it. They have very helpful personnel there from Heather on down throughout her entire staff that are willing and ready and very enthusiastic to help you find what you need. Those hard to find items, collectibles, they're always on the lookout for those. They can special order them for you as well within a 24 to 48 hour turnaround. And again, you can find them on Facebook. Be sure to like them there. All the latest albums that come in, Heather shoots these short videos and it'll show you those. And again, question them online. Send her a direct message. She'll be happy to help you out. That's the Record Lounge in Rio Town. Turning now to our bowl preview. It's been a while since we talked in depth about the gridiron and football in Michigan State. We'll start there with a new era pinstripe bowl from Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. Spartans anywhere from three and a half to four point favorites over the Wake Forest Demon Deacons, who are eight and four on the season. Spartans sneak into the bowl picture with a uh, kind of pulling it out of the fire win over Maryland at home in that final game. It'll be a 3.20 Eastern start on ESPN, and that's coming up on Friday, this Friday, December 27th. Now, looking at the numbers and the tail of the tape, and Wake Forest did not have as strong of a finish to the season as they had a start, but this is a very good offense. And Tom, we'll start there. You know, the ACC, I don't even know what to make of this conference overall below Clemson because it just was so far down. You know, this is a Wake Forest team that earlier in the season beat a decent Utah State team and then throughout conference play you know had their struggles especially defensively giving up 62 points to Louisville 52 to Clemson and even 39 in overtime in a loss at Syracuse not a very good Syracuse team I might add their most impressive win probably at home against NC State 44 to 10 but Wake Forest has lost three of their final four games their only win a home victory over Duke uh, just kind of a cursory read on this matchup here Tom and, and what you expect Michigan State to face in Wake Forest. Well, yeah, I mean, you you nail it on the ACC. I mean, you you take Clemson away, the ACC is like that's like matchup with them. That might even be a little below the Mac. Oh wow, be quite. I'm not trying to embellish their negative, you know, in a negative way, but it's just it's not very good league. And um, but you know, with Wake Forest, I, I saw a part of that Syracuse game, and you know, there's you know, Syracuse is not a very good team. The fact they lost that game. 
um, really said a lot. The Utah State game, I think, is that that's the most quality win right there because that's typically a good team, and mm-hmm. even though they lost their bowl game uh, to a MAC team uh, last night, so you know, I mean, that maybe they're not that good, but um, I, I think that they'll be able to move the ball against Michigan State, and uh, and and when we get to the prediction phase, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm pretty confident, and and I'm going to pick. Uh, I'll just say it right now. I think Wake Forest is going to win this game 24-20 because mm-hmm. I think Michigan State's offense is. Not very good. <laughs> it's just not very good. And I, you know, I, I just think the conditions, uh, you know, on, on, you know, it's probably going to, it's going to be this baseball field and who knows what they're going to be dealing with on that particular turf. Although Michigan State is used to playing on natural grass, but not much atmosphere. And I think maybe Wake might be more determined. I don't know. But I, I got, I got Wake in this game 24 uh, 20, beating Michigan State. You know, I could see where you're coming from, Tom, and everything about this game makes me want to pick Wake Forest. They're number 12 offensively, and they've got a dual-threat quarterback. You know, I look at the offense, and again, you have to take into account the level of competition, uh, but this is a quarterback in Jamie Newman who's got experience as a junior, a decent completion percentage at 62.3. He's the team's third-leading rusher, and again, in college football, they take into account sack yardage against a rushing yardage gain, but Newman can move. He's mobile and that can be a problem for Michigan State. We've seen it throughout this season uh, against guys, let's say, like a Michael Penix from Indiana when he was healthy. But he does have six rushing touchdowns, Newman, the quarterback, on the season for Wake Forest. They've got a pretty good one-two punch at running back with Cade Carney, the more experienced runner, and then a freshman as well in Kenneth Walker. And this is the guy I'm going to keep my eye on. He's averaging 6.2 yards per carry and has just about as many yards, just one fewer yard in 53 fewer carries than Carney has so Walker the freshman let's see if he gets the lion's share back there and not to mention Wake Forest has a, a pair of near 1,000 yard receivers Sage Sherratt is over that mark with 1,001 yards 11 touchdowns who's going to be the primary cover on Sage Sherratt this is a guy that again is going to be a matchup problem and then they've got Kendall Hinton another wide receiver this guy with a team high 70 catches for 953 yards and this is where I have my greatest concern for Michigan State is on the corner. Can Josiah Scott stay with the top receiver for Wake Forest, and is he going to be locked in one-on-one against a guy like we see? And you know, throughout this game, We'll continue to see, you know, whether or not Wake Forest is able to put the ball up through the air, get that kind of production uh, over the top, and Michigan State's got to be able to limit them. I think the conditions that Tom touched on might factor in, and when we're recording this, don't know the weather exactly, but uh, you look at the running game and what Michigan State has to be able to do in controlling the clock and extending drives, Elijah Collins, scripted drives. I mean, this offense is singing for its supper right now. Brian Lewerke, this will be his swan song. And for Michigan State, they've got to find an idea identity on offense and they're still looking for that and in the wake of everything that's happened this season the potential coaching changes that we might see or might not see on the offensive side of the ball this is the last chance for the Spartans to really make a statement I think getting to this bowl game meant something to them the program win hats notwithstanding for MSU and that rather lackluster win over Maryland I think they find a way to get the job done. I don't know why I'm picking more, I guess, with my gut in this than anything, Tom, but I'll take Wake Forest to cover. I'm kind of weaseling my way through the back door here. I'll take Michigan State to win, but 20-17, to 17, that does not cover the three and a half or four points for Wake. So you and I both have Wake Forest covering. We both have the score right around the 20-point mark, and I think that's going to be indicative of how this game is played. If it gets up and away, and this gets to be ACC shootout
blowout type territory. I don't necessarily expect that that will happen in in the Bronx in in January in December here. But uh, for Michigan State, it's going to be can they kind of control the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball, and particularly for me up front on defense. And I do think they have the horses to get that job done. Be very interested to see how Kenny Willekes goes out in this game, his final game as a Spartan. Yeah, the other element is when we talked last, I mean, and I always have these glimmering optics. I saw Michigan State, you know, I watched them replay the game when they get Maryland, and they just didn't look very good against a really bad Maryland team. But since that time, to me, it sounds like just from a distance that the Michigan State coaching staff is a little bit more solidified than when we were visiting that topic, you know, right after that game. It sounds like to me, Mark D'Antonio is definitely coming back, obviously. That's even nailed down even more. And the other element is, I don't think there's going to be any coaching changes. And I think players are, might be comfortable with that, uh, at least a majority of them, because most most players don't like change. They get comfortable and they don't want change. And so I think that might work for Michigan State. But still, I just that secondary of Michigan State, just that's just an, a variable out there. And then Michigan State's offense is so inconsistent, and Lewerke can look so bad at times, even in this his final year. So we'll take a look and see what happens as Michigan State, again, playing Friday. That'll be in the afternoon, 3.20 Eastern kickoff, ESPN with a televised coverage against the Wake Forest Demon Deacons, the New Era Pinstripe Bowl from the Bronx and Yankee Stadium in New York. And again, Michigan State, anywhere, if you're looking at the books from a three and a half to a four point favorite in this one, Tom's got Wake Forest winning 24 20. I got Michigan State winning, but not covering at 20 to 17. Final thought on this bowl game. And I want to go back to something you just said because, Tom, I can't really process this. I can't process that one season after Mark D'Antonio stands fast and stands by his guys, his offensive coaches, all of his coaches, makes no changes over the last offseason. And we see basically the same results, a middling to mediocre team with a below average offense. The thought or the notion that not only does Mark D'Antonio come back and that's his call and he's got a legacy at Michigan State, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but that there wouldn't be any pressure, any focus, any leaning on him by anybody, including himself, to reform or remake this offense in some way. Do you really believe that Mark D'Antonio, from a public relations standpoint, from a season ticket holder standpoint, from the alumni donation standpoint, all these political factors can survive an offseason coming back by just flouting the fans, the will of the people, so to speak, and saying, nah, you know what? We're good. We're going to stay with the guys we have, even though our offense stinks on ice. How can he justify that at this point? Uh, Yes, yes, yes. It's called empowerment, Ryan. I mean... At Michigan State right now, from the athletic director standpoint, from the from the this the whole administrative level, I mean, Mark D'Antonio accountability resides just within himself, and I think he's confident he can get the job done next year. There might be some minor tweaks. We don't know that. There might be some different scheme approaches offensively, defensively, but I'm hearing from multiple sources there's going to be minimal, if not any, coaches changes going on with that staff. Wow. And I, you know, that, I, mean, that I might be wrong on that, um, but I, you, you know, there might. I don't know. I, I'm trying to think. You know, like for example, Don Treadwell. Actually, and I haven't talked to Don. He's a friend of mine, but and I and I, I would never uh, approach him on that topic. 
um, you know, just to get some editorial things here. I'll just let him do what he's going to do. But, you know, he's about 62, 63. Maybe, you know, maybe he's – and he's been in coaching for a long 40 years, you know. Some of these coaches, you think, it, yeah, I'm, I've done my thing, you know, and maybe it's time to move on. I don't know if Tread will, if, if Tread will leave or, or anybody else, but I don't think they're going to leave being forced out. Mark D'Antonio believes in that program. He he believes in himself, and uh, and and the the leadership at Michigan State is allowing Mark D'Antonio to do what Mark D'Antonio wants. And I, I don't I don't I can't even fathom that not being the case. So we'll see how it plays out. I think this is a kind of a working audition for this offensive line for Michigan State, uh, for which many of these guys will be coming back. Nick Samak up front, the freshman. Uh, Devontae Dobbs hopefully going to be able to you know go for major minutes in this game. A.J.R. Curry is a redshirt junior. You know Every one of these guys that you're looking at maybe coming back next year, and how do they reinforce that talent with a recruiting class that's coming in? You know, It takes time to build an offensive line. It takes time for offensive linemen to blossom into what they're going to be. And Michigan State in the past has been very good at that in recent years however they've had injuries up front they've had attrition up front and they've just had i think stalling out in development up front and this has been a major area of focus and concern for an msu offense that cannot protect the quarterback that cannot block for the run and against a wake forest defense that isn't that great if they're stymied the way that they were against maryland in large regard i mean this is going to be a glaring red flag going forward and a bowl game that i think as is as important for Michigan State as any in recent memory that wasn't really for anything you know on a national scale. It's it's hard to kind of equate this to any other bowl game they've played under Mark D'Antonio in the past because they barely got into this one. I think they're thankful to be there. I think it means something for them to be there. And whether or not they win, I think is going to go a long way in, in terms of the taste that's left in the mouth, Tom, of Michigan State fans in this offseason and how willing they're going to be uh, able to accept these changes or lack thereof from Michigan State uh, heading into the 2020 season boy you, you nailed it there's two milestone markers uh mile markers in a season that are critical for the word hope but fans want hope one is um obviously winning a bowl game and i, I probably overstate it but i truly believe it winning a bowl game not only gives great momentum for the program but the players and your offseason workouts but for the fans because that's the last visual they see is a win okay the other element is recruiting and Michigan State just finished their, you know, this the early signing period, which is basically the signing period in the Big Ten. And what, 11th or 12th in the Big Ten, depending on the platform, uh, nationally anywhere from mid-30s to 42 and one for 24-7. That doesn't give fans hope and excitement about reordering their season tickets for the 2020 campaign. And that's really the only way a message is going to be delivered by these fans is to, is to stand up and say, look, you know, we demand change. And that comes from the big alumni donors as well. And as long as there's no pressure coming from any direction on head coach Mark D'Antonio, what impetus is there really for him to change anything other than his own self-reflection and in, in coming to terms with the fact that they don't have the uh, the answers they need or the horses they need on offense to compete at the highest level in the Big Ten anymore. It just isn't there. And we've seen case evidence of this in three of the past four seasons with 2017 and that Holiday Bowl win looking more and more like the outlier that it is on paper. So again, Michigan State, Wake Forest, and that new era pinstripe bowl. We'll keep tabs on this, have a recap for you a week from today with our reflective podcast as we head into calendar year 2020. How about that? Now, to the Citrus Bowl, Michigan 
Alabama. Two big-name programs going head-to-head. Two big personality coaches in Nick Saban and uh, Jim Harbaugh who have had their loggerheads in the past, most notably about the satellite camps. Let's start there, Tom, and your thoughts on Nick Saban, who, who really made a big deal about that, and the SEC did as well. Jim Harbaugh kind of raiding into the South, carpetbagger that he is, staging these satellite camps in Florida and elsewhere, and trying to kind of rip into SEC recruiting territory. What did you think of Nick Saban's reaction at the time, and what do you think of Jim Harbaugh's approach to recruiting where he really doesn't give a damn what anybody else thinks? Well, I mean, yeah, now how long ago was that? A few years ago. I think that's not going to be an issue for this game. There's other issues that are going to decide this outcome. Uh, in fact, I think Nick Saban's pretty happy with his recruiting class. He got 20 of the top 300. Are you kidding me? I mean, and he's a, he's a top two or three, whatever platform you're looking at. So I think that was, you know, overstated at the time, and it's definitely in the rearview mirror right now. But, I mean, Michigan looks at recruiting from a national standpoint. You have to. State of Michigan high school football is not all that good, and then you're sharing it with another – you're fighting over it with another major institution 63 miles away. So Michigan's doing what's best interest for them – is the fact they are a national school. They're not a regional school. Half of their student body, for example, is 50-50. And their football pro- program recruiting is going nationwide. So, I, you know, I think that was a big story, at the, a cute little story, because you need a story in the springtime <laughs> to, to satisfy college football fans. It's not even going to be an issue, I don't think, as we head into the Citrus Bowl. There's other glaring issues that are determining that outcome. New Year's Day, of course, 1 p.m. Eastern Time kickoff on ABC, number 13, Alabama, number 14, Michigan. Both teams got it handed to them in their final games, their rivalry games. For Michigan, of course, it was the 56-27 loss to Ohio State. For Alabama, the Iron Bowl, they lost that one at Auburn, 48-45. And if there's kind of a, a ray of light here for Michigan and what I look for from Alabama, this is not a typical Alabama defense in large regard, Tom, against the two best teams they've played, LSU and Auburn. They've allowed 46 and 48 points respectively. On the road against Texas A&M, they allowed 28. I mean, this is a team, again, uh, varying matchups throughout the year. Not a lot of big names on Alabama's schedule, but the ones that they faced, those teams have been able to move the ball and score against them. Alabama has a decent defense. I wouldn't consider them to be elite. And for Michigan on offense, let's start there and where they pick up and what they were doing against Ohio State. What they were doing really for the second half of the season, we kind of marked that second half of the Penn State game where everything kind of turned for this Michigan offense that had been mostly maligned. Shea Patterson looking to go out on a high note. All of the seniors, it appears, are going to be playing. It looks like Michigan has just a different feel, different look in their eye. Maybe it's the opponent that's got them keyed up for this one, Tom, but it doesn't seem like, again, Jim Harbaugh struggled in these bowl games to get his team prepared and motivated. That's going to be a problem here. Oh, motivation is not going to be a problem. A thing called talent disparity is going to be the problem. <laughs> the problem with this game, Ryan, is this. It's it's not so much Michigan being able to, to run the ball again or to move the ball against Alabama and score. The very here, here here's a here's a stat line to look at. If Michigan doesn't have to punt in this game, they got a chance of winning. Anything less than that, they're going to get blown out. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I think Michigan can score 21, 24, 28 points. They might even score 30 points. But when Alabama has a football with with Jerry Judy and those four NFL receivers, an offensive line that can pass pro as good as any in the country, you got Najee Harris, a good running back, and Mac Jones, a, a good enough thrower. He can throw deep 
with that line protection and those receivers. I mean, Michigan's going to have to score 42 points minimal to win this game. Minimal. And I'm thinking I'm being really conservative in that because Alabama's offense could potentially hang 56 63 points, who knows how many, against this Michigan defense. And that's the rub because this Alabama offense, even without Tua Tagliavola, is with Mac Jones, again, this guy's completed nearly 70% of his passes. He's a solid quarterback. He's got great protection. Tom pointed out he's got four receivers. I mean, pick your poison there. Devontae Smith is chief among them, of course, with (laughs) 1,200 yards, 13 touchdowns. But Jerry Judy, a name most people recognize out there, team high, 71 catches, just shy of 1,000 yards nine touchdowns in his own right oh by the way Henry Ruggs has seven TDs on the season 719 yards Jalen Waddle another name you're gonna have to keep an eye out for Najee Harris can catch the ball out of the backfield he's got seven receiving touchdowns and not to mention he's a thousand yard rusher on the season as a bell cow back in the truest form we've seen it before going back into the past whether it's Derek Henry or Mark Ingram Harris is that type of uh, back and that type of mold averaging about six yards per carry and has 11 touchdowns on the season so you couldn't be more right, Tom, in this offensive attack. It's an embarrassment of riches and much the same concern that I have for Michigan State on a much smaller scale against a team like Wake Forest is the secondary. The, the matchups that we're going to see on the corners against receivers, what type of defensive scheme that they come out with, Don Brown. I mean, they couldn't stop Ohio State, and Alabama's as good or better offensively, at least, I think, than Ohio State is overall in terms of talent across the board. So this Michigan secondary, I mean, what are we going to look for? Lavert Hill going to be ta- uh, challenged to the, the max. Uh, Ambry Thomas, the safeties, Josh Metellus, Brad Hall. Hawkins. Are, are we going to see a lot of nickel looks? Are we going to drop linebackers in coverage? I mean, how does Don Brown attack this when you talk about a talent discrepancy that there's only so much you can do? Well, I don't care if you run press, zone. Well, I don't care what you do. It doesn't matter because the problem is Michigan's defensive line is undersized, especially relative to Alabama. And so, you know, are you going to get Aiden Hutchinson or Josh Uche, uh, you know, providing any, any, uh, quarterback pressures against Mac Jones. I don't see it, Ryan. And then and then the other thing is, I think you're going to get an even more significant push against Alabama's offensive line against Michigan's undersized D-line. That's that's a recruiting need, and I think it maybe was fulfilled a little bit, but they have got to address that and get a more physical defensive line. Michigan does, I'm talking about, because I just shudder that matchup of Bama offense against Michigan defense, and I'm talking at all three levels. I'm talking D-line, talking about linebacking core uh, with the shallow crossers, and then I'm talking about that secondary where I can – Josh Metellus that let you know Chris Olave get behind him uh, in the Ohio State game, and I'm seeing that happen again, uh, obviously, against Alabama. If it's a nice weather day, which typically it is in Orlando on January 1, that would just be the perfect storm for a, just a wrecking – crew of Michigan or of Alabama's offense against Michigan's defense. Alabama has the number seven overall offense, two spots below Ohio State in overall yardage per game and Michigan with the number six rated defense. But we've seen the cracks in the veneer there, if you will, against teams that can throw the football on the perimeter. Is that the thing that scares you the most about Alabama? I mean, there's a lot of things that concern you, Tom, but their ability to stretch the field and even with Mac Jones at quarterback with the talent they have at receiver to make those big plays vertically down the field oh yeah i mean they, they can stretch it off you know horizontally yeah it's it going vert i mean they these guys go four vert they call four guys going you know streak routes 
Uh, I mean, my God, these are all NFL-bound receivers. I promise you they will all be in the NFL. They will all be household names in the NFL. And back to Alabama's defense, yeah, two of their top players are not playing in this game. That's fine, okay? And and that will help Michigan's offense even more. But once again, how can he keep up with from a, from a, a match play in, in it's like a tennis match. Are you going to score a major score every possession? That's what it's going to take. Alabama has the number 36 rated rush defense. And this is the one kind of uh, angle that if Michigan can establish the run, we've talked about this in the past and whether or not they've been able to do it and sustain it, you know, eat clock, long time consuming drives, just keep the ball out of Alabama's hands. I think for the Wolverines, their best defense might be their own offense. I think Hassan Haskins is, is strong in that regard. And for a Michigan offensive line that has played relatively well, especially later in the season that's not been the problem for the Wolverines in finding holes Zach Charbonnet obviously a name that's going to jump out at you there but for Michigan is ball control the name in the game here Tom because you're right they don't want to get into an arms race like nuclear war here against Alabama and try to outscore them they're not going to be able to do that so if Michigan can run the football establish that keep that going how confident are you that they can do that one and two that that would keep them in the game well, obviously, I mean that. You know, yeah, absolutely. That ball control—that's a really valid point. But part of Michigan's problems this year, uh, and there was a void where it wasn't an issue in the middle of the season, but turnovers, and we saw that flip the Michigan-Ohio State game performance. Michigan's Michigan was doing really well, uh, you know, in terms of offense efficiently uh, efficiency. And what does Shea Patterson do? He muffs a, a snap, and all of a sudden, it flipped that game on a dime. That with another mistake on an offsides by Cleek Hudson on a critical third down. Once again, that added to the uh, the onslaught, and all of a sudden, all bets are off. That's the thing that I fear. First of all, uh, no puns for Michigan. <laughs> Maybe I, okay, yeah. I'm going overboard there, but you know, very pun very few times. I'll just say that uh-huh. one or two times. The other thing, they they got they they can't turn the ball over once to compete in this game, let alone ball control. And I'm not trying to make it that Alabama's is just is just superb juggernaut. I mean, it's Alabama-esque like other teams are. But Michigan's defense, I just don't have confidence again, again for, uh, with them against a big, physical, SEC-caliber defense. I have the same feeling right in this game that I did in 2001 when Michigan went against Tennessee – uh, Jason Whitlock, or, or yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, was that the, the guy? Was at the, um, the the tight end for the Cowboys was on that team. Oh, Jason Witten. With Jason Witten, yeah, Jason Witten was on that team. You know that that it was a it was a national caliber team. This is how I feel up against this Alabama team. Yeah, they're not in the in the playoff hunt, but they're that good. And I have that same feeling. And that was a blowout. Well, I look back on Michigan State against Alabama in bowl games, and I'm having the same kind of feeling. There was the Capital One Bowl. You go back to 2011 where Alabama just rolled Michigan State. It was a, it was a yeah. atypical down year for Nick Saban and the Crimson Tide. They won that game 49-7. to That was a really good Michigan State team as well that went into that game. I'm getting a similar vibe here. I don't think it'll be that big of a blowout. I, I mean, maybe I'm just being optimistic from Michigan's standpoint, but I, I'm with you 
you on a couple things, Tom. Michigan can't punt at all, really. I mean, they've got to be able to hold on to the ball and get productive drives. They can't have turnovers like killed them against Ohio State. Anything they hand Alabama, the Crimson Tide are going to turn around and make blow up right in their face. But if I look at this game, I'll offer my prediction first. Uh, Michigan, again, ground game control, uh, looking to slow down an offense that hasn't been slowed down a lot this season. They have surrendered points, Alabama, and I think Michigan will score their fair share. Alabama, seven-point favorite from Camping World Stadium in Orlando for this Citrus Bowl, and I'll take them to cover and win, but maybe not by as big of a margin as a lot of people might be fearing out there. i got the Crimson Tide, 38, Wolverines, 28. Tom, your final score prediction and why? <laughs> well, the reason I the reason I said uh, Michigan's going to have to score 42 points minimum because I'll, I'll just say Alabama conservatively will score 41. I got Alabama 41 Michigan 24, a 17-point margin. I think Michigan's going to compete for two and a half quarters, but uh, midway through the third, they're going to make a mistake. It's going to flip the game, and then uh, all bets are off. And uh, boy, I t- I wrote one more um, one more note on this game though. You know, betting is le- going to be legal now in the state of Michigan. Oh yeah. Oh my God! If I had money to spend, th- that point spread it's 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 shocking. That how that thing isn't going up? I don't know in Vegas. I guess there's a, just a lot of love goggled Michigan fans that bet on their team for the sake of betting on their team. That's what happens. That, that I've talked about that with guys that are expert sharps out there before Tom on my uh, old radio program, and that's what it is. It's a lot of Michigan fans betting with their hearts, and they have the money to do it. I know that you are not going to do that. <laughs> no, I'm not do I don't bet, but my God, this one would be tempting. And so, uh, yeah, forty-one twenty-four, and, uh, and 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 regroup and try to, you know, that be four straight bowl game. It would be a bad loss. It would be a PR nightmare again, which continues on for Jim Harbaugh, and uh, the the program would just have to continue to to challenge itself or, or just accept where it uh, who it is. I don't know, but uh, moving forward, not a really positive vibe from Michigan fans. I talked to a lot of Michigan football fans yesterday down at Chrysler, a few of them. They're not excited about the bowl game, and they're not excited about 2020 either. So even though they had a top, you know, top 10, top 11 recruiting class, that doesn't mean anything to them right now. A couple more things here, Tom, on Michigan before I let you go, and the first being the bowl game situation with Jim Harbaugh and Michigan. He won his first bowl game in his first season, the Citrus, and if they lose against Alabama in this Citrus Bowl, that would be four straight bowl losses. And more importantly to me, they haven't really shown up in a lot of these bowl losses. It hasn't been a Michigan team that you look at and go, yeah, they're sharp. They came ready to play. They were prepared in this month they had to build up for this game. And my, my question to you is, if they lose big against Alabama, what kind of rumblings and, and grumblings will there be among the Michigan fan base about, hey, if Jim Harbaugh can't get his team ready for a bowl game like this, how is he ever going to be ready for a Big Ten championship game, for a Rose Bowl, for a playoff game, to be able to come prepared to one of those? Well, I don't care how much they're rumbling. Or it doesn't matter. I mean, he's going to be the head football coach at Michigan, at least for the to fulfill his seven-year contract. I mean, there's just no question in my mind he's not going to be fired. And, right. and I don't think he's going to leave. So it's just – I think there's part of an acceptance mode right now for Michigan fans. I, you know, it is what it is. And I think part of the fact is when you have Ohio State – Getting another top three class. When Michigan gets nine out of the uh, nine of the top three hundred, and all the other power five, the five power five schools, talking about Bama, LSU, Clemson, Ohio State, you can even throw Auburn in there, maybe even Georgia, even go six. 
when they all get 15, 16, 17, and in Bama's case, 20 of the top 300, and you're sitting there at nine, and you're looked upon as pretty good? I mean, that that whole gap in talent between Michigan, Penn State, and then Ohio State is getting cavernously larger. And I think we're, everybody's at acceptance stage. They're never going to get to Indy in, that, in the foreseeable future because Ohio State keeps churning along an SEC caliber of talent. Final note here, Tom, and that is the entering of the transfer portal by Tariq Black, the wide receiver junior for Michigan, who will not be playing in this game, will be going elsewhere. As you look at the the wide receiver depth that's been a strength for Michigan this season, sophomore Ronnie Bell, the juniors, Nico Collins, DPJ, Giles Jackson, and Mike Sandra still have uh, broken through as freshmen as well. Was this just a numbers game? Do you understand Tariq Black's decision to leave? And further to that point, uh, does Donovan Peoples-Jones consider entering NFL draft a year earlier, or all these guys besides black of course coming back for 2020 well i think dpj might leave but you know i there's an you know i hate to say receivers are a dime a dozen but for michigan i mean they their top recruit coming into this aj henning is a four solid four-star receiver and uh, all the names that you cited coming back uh henry you know or i mean uh, mike sandristill and and obviously you know um jack jobs jackson i mean there's enough talent there i don't think that's that's their issue uh, next year, so um, I think Tariq Black got just caught. He got frustrated uh, earlier in the year, and I, I you know, kind of saw that coming. He he got injured his freshman year. It was kind of a he had a quick jump out of the gate with that touchdown pass against Florida down at AT and T. Uh, his first game as a freshman, and never really took off from there. And an injury had a lot to do with that. So once again, the two bowl games coming up, Michigan State, Wake Forest, New Era Pinstripe Bowl, 3.20 p.m. Eastern time start. That'll be coming up on this Friday, December 27th from the Bronx Yankee Stadium in New York. Uh, Tom and I both have Wake Forest covering. Tom's got Wake winning straight up 24-20. I've got the Spartans winning but not covering the three-and-a-half or four-point spread. 20-17 to 17 Spartans. I'm going with my gut there, and I don't know, maybe my heart a little bit. But for Michigan-Alabama, number 14 Wolverines, number 13 Crimson Tide, again, a 1 p.m. kickoff. ABC will have the coverage from Orlando in the Citrus Bowl on New Year's Day. I've got Alabama winning 38-28, covering the seven-point spread. Tom feels that spread is low. I think it is as well. And Tom's got Alabama winning 41-24 by that 17-point margin. A couple more things. One more football-related. Divided we stand on FS1. And Tom, I, I gotta admit, I, you're one of these guys, and please take this the right way, when you get angry, I find it amusing because I know you're a really good guy and that normally, you know, you got a great sense of humor about everything in general, yeah. yourself in particular. But you seemed really pissed off with one Devin Gardner in that special. Take us through the reasons why. <laughs> well, for the first half of the show, um, and I think Devin Gardner has this this fantasy. He wants to be an actor someday. So he probably volunteered to be or he probably pushed his way onto that show. And he's well-spoken, good-looking guy. He's got the whole, you know, he's animated. He was kissing Sparty ass way too much in the first half of that show. <laughs> I mean, it was it was unbelievable, you know, basically defending, uh, you know, Michigan State for, for you know, for, for sticking their face after, you know, the Joe Bolden, you know, the spear in the field stuff, all that. Not, I thought it was very slanted towards Michigan State. I, I truly believe that. Hmm. The first three quarters of it in particular – they went a little bit more balanced when they got into the beeline Izzo thing, but the football thing was uh, basically, uh, you know, a coronation for Mark D'Antonio. Um, and and you know that's just my opinion. And there were a lot of things that were there were some things that were wrong in that thing. Um, 
you know, that, that, you know, just little things. Um, for example, John U. Bacon said, uh, and I'm just, I, I, there was a few other things I, I, that I wrote down. Um, one was relationship with Judd Heathcote and, and uh, Bo Schembechler about it, or the, you know, that, I mean, just that whole, that, that venom thing. Uh, I think that was exaggerated. And then, you know, John U. Bacon said, you know, Denny Stoltz, uh, the arrogant asses. That was Daryl Rogers. Everybody knows that's Daryl Rogers. All right. There was, a, just, there was just a lot of things that I, um, I almost thought it was thrown together, um, to be honest with you. Um, and and it was only a six, uh, you know, six or seven month production, or when they announced they're going to do it. I, I just, I wasn't impressed by it, and it was, just, you know, probably because of the Sparty slant to it. But hey, uh, you know, I, I like being pissed off, and that made the Saturday at noon a lot sweeter. <laughs> I will agree <laughs> with you on one count: is it, it did feel kind of thrown together the production, the production value, it, and it I was thrown together. I thought, I thought it was, yeah, and, and they had some people talk. I thought Brendan Quinn did all right with the basketball. Some people, I mean, you could have got so many other people that would have really hit it better. Um, Are you saying Jack Ebling um, shouldn't have been on there? I mean, no, Jack did it. No, I thought Jack did a good job. He got a lot of, he is Spartan historian and everything. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, if you're going to play, here's a, let me give you an example. He talks about, oh, Michigan State, um, the, you know, they're, they're all pissed off about Michigan uh, keeping uh, Michigan State out of the Big Ten. There was not one mention in that hour show about the vote in 73, which was one of the more the more um, demonstrative uh, events that happened in the Michigan-Michigan State uh, rivalry when, when Michigan State voted for Ohio State in that infamous vote in 1973 when it was a 10-10 tie. Who's going to go to the bowl game? Michigan outplayed Ohio State. They used Dennis Franklin injury as a scapegoat and and uh, it was petty jealousies. But, and Bo Schimbeck was obviously very irritated. He referenced uh, the bitterness, the fact that our sister institution voted uh, for Ohio State. Um, people would laugh at that comment now, little sister and everything. But, um, uh, yeah, that, that it was not mentioned in the entire show. I mean, <laughs> that, was, that was a big part of the lore. And Michigan was going to run and run the score up on them next year, the following year. And they, they only beat them 21-7. Everybody was... Everybody said that they were going to, you know, hang, you know, 50, 60 points on them in 1974. Um, but they, you know, they beat them by two touchdowns. But I mean, that, that really was a, a, was a really shot in the rivalry, even though that was right in the middle, mind you, of Michigan having an eight game, eight game winning streak over Michigan State. But at least it, it got this little dose of rivalry right in the middle of that span that got the venom going between Michigan and Michigan state. So yeah, thrown together. Yeah. The thing was thrown together. I'll, I'll just say it. Well, let me follow up on that, Tom, because I, I hate to play the the role of Jack Ebling and he's gotten a couple of mentions now in this podcast because you and I, you know, that's a, a common reference point for you and me. And I, right. I respect the hell out of Jack and his career and his longevity and his knowledge as a historian. Cause he can pull facts like you do for Michigan. He can do, for Michigan State, and it's always fascinating for me. The thing I'll argue as Jack Ebling in this uh, debate is the 73 vote for Michigan State going against Michigan. Can't that just simply be read as revenge for when Michigan voted against Michigan State joining the Big Ten back in 1950? Isn't that a tit for tat? I'm not saying two wrongs make a right, but isn't that the explanation for it? Well, you know, that was a storyline. Absolutely. But they, they didn't even mention it. It wasn't even in the show mm -hmm. that I saw, and that—that that was my point. That was a big part of the lore, 
and 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 you know that being said, Jack told me that you know he, you know for his part of you know how that you know the cutting room floor a lot of times has some of the best stuff, and it's all in the editing, and the editing can be bad editing. Well, I mean Jack, I think Jack indicated to me when I was talking to him that you you know he was in front of that camera for close to an hour. And, you know, I mean, they, they just use bits and bytes here and there. That's how that goes. And um, how they left that out was ridiculous. Here's what I would add as well. And if you and I ever maybe do this undertaking as executive producers, Tom, I think we'd be pretty damn good at this uh, in that we would include everything. I like the in front of the camera addressing it. Brendan Quinn, even though, you know, a lot of people have been around the rivalry a lot longer than Brendan has. Brendan has he's a Johnny come lately on that. I'm sorry. He's not, right. you know, he's, I would have gone with something. That's another example. He covers both teams. I get that. I understand that, but it's just in the last few years, you're missing way too much. Right. I mean, you look at even me as a Gen Xer, Tom, I remember one of my first memories, formative memories was my dad jumping around the living room when magic Johnson and Michigan state won the national title in 1979. Uh, I remember Michigan State football and Michigan football. Anthony Carter, I'll, fu- I'll put this out there, and Spartan fans are going to get mad. He was my favorite player uh, growing up as a little right. kid in Pinckney, Michigan, which wasn't far from Ann Arbor. Larry Treganing, the trigger, he lived, trigger in my na- Treganing. Yes. he lived in my neighborhood in Pinckney, right there off Rush wow. Lake. And he was uh, you know, one of these guys, neighborhood lore. And my dad told me, oh, that's Larry Treganing. I go, well, okay, he's, he's Larry. He's the neighbor down the street. He goes, no, no, no. He played basketball for Michigan. And so you know, I didn't grow up, I guess, hating Michigan as much. I, I delight in them losing to Michigan State. But a lot about this rivalry to me, it, it needs to be healthy. We, we got so much vitriol out there right now, Tom, whether it's politics with President Trump and the other side, the impeachment or sports getting a little bit too dark. And, you know, you got Colin Kaepernick and the kneeling and all this crap, right? I want to celebrate, and I know you do too, and this is what makes you and I a lot alike, what makes sports great, what brings us together about sports. It crosses all racial boundaries, religious boundaries, economic boundaries. Everybody comes together in a way that maybe it used to be for church and stuff like that. College football is its own religion. It's its own church. And the people that get together on a weekly basis, yeah, we're divided, the Great Lakes divide, between Michigan and Michigan State, but we're all in this together. And I don't mean to hold hands and sing kumbaya here, Tom, but in a way I am. Because in order to enjoy this rivalry, I think to its pinnacle, to its peak, and to have fun with it, the way you and I do, I think it's healthy to have that perspective, to respect the other side. You might have points of contention with the other side, but when it gets nasty and it gets dirty, I don't like it. I'll go back to one other example, and it it involves Devin Gardner. Devin Gardner was playing against Notre Dame, and he rolled out of the pocket. And in real time, in a Spartan chat room, a guy that I have a lot of respect for but lost it on that day, and I'm just saying this because it needs to be said, he said he lamented the fact that somebody for Notre Dame didn't take Devin Gardner out at the knees. Now, he would later apologize. I, I, I know who you're talking about. For that too. comment. That was Jim Comperoni at Spartan Mag. Totally yeah. out of character. I want to say that, too. But I had no time, no use for that comment. I was very enraged as a Michigan State fan because I don't want to set that kind of atmosphere for warfare to where now that's okay. Now that's been legitimized. And the other side, Michigan's going to say that about Michigan State players. I don't have any use for that, Tom, and I know you don't either. Well, here's the, you know, you were talking about the rivalry when you were a kid and jumping around, and and I had that rivalry being brought up a mile from campus, and 
you know, faculty people in the neighborhood and uh, all Michigan State people around me. But that was that was, you know, tit for tat. That was, you know, bantering face to face. When you throw social media into it um, and, 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 and just the sheer number of posts that people would make, uh, not just on Twitter, but Facebook and, and, and people hiding behind, you know, their accounts and, and feeling that just, you know, they're, they're just more predisposed to saying some vicious stuff as opposed to saying it right in front of somebody. There's the root of all evil on this. It stems to social media, which is why Tom Izzo disdains it and some other people do too. And, and, and message boards you talk about with comp, that's comp at a weak moment. Um, you know, the, you know, saying, um, you know, to, uh, to, to, you know, to, 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 you know, take somebody out. I, I, I saw a Michigan state fan, a Michigan state fan posted after the Illinois game, that team should be uh, taken out and shot. Okay. Well, my God, you should end up in jail for a comment like that. Mm. I mean, I mean, that, 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 that's just ridiculous. And that's social media. Yeah. And here's the thing yeah. I want to make sure I separate. Cause I think people might get the wrong idea. And we talk about the other side of social media. When I see a Tom Crawford tweet, like you said about Devin Gardner and how pissed you were, Tom, I can hear it. I read it in your voice because I know you. Well, that's because you know me, but right. there's other people that get pissed off that don't know me right. or knows a person. And that's what I want to say about my tweets, because I, you know, me, I'm very sarcastic, very dry sense of humor. Right. You know, it's going to have a razor's edge to it, but I want to make sure and I never, ever, you know this about me, I don't go after people on Twitter other than the intellectual arena of debate to engage, to argue, but it never gets personal, never gets nasty. I don't swear at people. I don't call them names. I want to maintain some level of civil discourse. And when I when I have tweets and I get criticized, you know this, Tom, from my own side, a lot. And I have Michigan fans who enjoy following me and interact with me all the time because I call it like I see it. I try to view this objectively like an umpire. I'm not uh, swimming in the sauce or drinking the Kool-Aid of Michigan State. When something needs to be called out, I am going to do that. So, And I told Tom Izzo this, and you know what he told me? He told me he appreciated it. And I don't no, want to throw, throw names out there right now because this was a private conversation. But what I will say is Tom Izzo told me directly, he goes, Ryan, I know you're not like a homer like some of these guys. And he goes, believe me, I love the homers, but I get it. You're doing your job. You have a job to do. You're objective, you're honest, and that's all I ever ask from you. And that's been my credo is that we be honest, fair, and accurate. And if I'm those three things and it happens to not look so good for Michigan State, it's not that I think less of Mark D'Antonio as a person. I think he's an outstanding person. Every interaction I've ever had with Mark whether it be a press conference or he's been on my show in San Diego, he took time for that. He has been kind. He has been cordial. He's been professional. I met him and Becky at the uh, Lansing Promise dinner at, at one of these years. I, I don't have anything negative to say about Mark D'Antonio, the person. Now, some of the things that have happened on his watch and how he's handled that or not handled it, I don't approve of how this Joe Bocci thing's been handled at all. Again, Joe Bechtel, Grass Lake High School, legendary Hall of Fame coach, and some of you around the Jackson area know who he is. If Joe Bocci, doesn't matter if he was Joe Jones or Joe Bocci, did what he did, he's done. He's gone. You wave him goodbye, and you send a message to the rest of your team that this will not be tolerated. We love Joe, and we're always going to be there for him off the field as a person, but that crap 
PED usage will not be tolerated, certainly won't be encouraged in this football program, and it will be cut out like a cancer no matter who it is. And when another player sees that Joe Bocci has paid the ultimate price, losing his privilege of being on the Michigan State football team, it's not a right, losing his privilege because of what he did and holding him accountable, that sends such a powerful message, and Mark D'Antonio failed to do that. So what I'm coming back to in this whole conversation, Tom, and I'm glad we've gone down this rabbit hole, is the documentary itself, Great Lakes Divide, of course, The Divided We Stand. I like the kind of correlation there. I would have liked to see more historical footage. And what I mean by that, you have the here and now. You have a Brendan Quinn, and that's fine. You have Mark D'Antonio, Tom Izzo on camera, John Beeline on camera, that's fine. Was Jim Harbaugh on camera for that? I don't know that he was. I'm trying no, to think and, back. And, and to be honest with you, I mean, the 66 team, I don't care if if if, um, if you want to do something on a rivalry, you know, you know, show it, you know, show it, you know, at least go back five decades. You know, that's not going back too far in my mind, particularly for Michigan State. This two, two greatest teams were 65, 66. I mean, I yeah. – don't even uh, remember seeing any reference to those. You know, that's I a good mean, point. To be honest with yeah, you and know. that's the thing. I would have liked to have seen Tom Duffy Doherty on camera. Uh, exactly. Bo Schembechler, all of his great speeches on camera. Yeah. George Perlis, who we know is in his later years and in the twilight of his life right now and probably not able to give interviews anymore. I think I actually conducted one of the last interviews he's given, and he's, he's in a diminished state. We know that. But he has archive footage you could sift through and get gold from. And Bo Schembechler, the same thing. You know, those who say will be champions. I don't think that was even mentioned. Well, this, well the thing about it is, is that the, the biggest thing that they missed, and Bo Schembechler in 1969 came up to East Lansing. He's, he's an Ohio guy. He knows all about Michigan and Ohio State. He know, He's clueless about Michigan State. And he realized at that point, and that's why he won eight games in a row over him after that, that I got to take these guys serious. This is at a whole nother level. And he was never ill-prepared for a Michigan State game after that. And, and that game, I mean, Duffy you know, flipped his offense the, the week before. He went to the Veer with Don Heisman. Yeah. And, they, yeah. and Michigan was ranked, and Michigan State was a marginal team in 1969. That was even left out. I mean, there was so much. I mean, hey, listen, they, you know, I didn't have to watch it. They promoted the heck out of it. But maybe it's Fox. Maybe maybe they're just over their head. Mm. Uh, maybe yeah. if it was local, more locally produced. I don't know. But I was, you know, I've said enough about it. It's uh, not no, worth watching. I, 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 and the more we talk about it, Tom, the more I agree with you because there's so much texture to the rivalry between these two schools that was left on the cutting room floor. This should have been one. It should have been two hours long. And two, when you're trying to cover both football and basketball, that makes that point even further. But like I said, the archival footage that exists – I mean, Bo Schembechler's another guy. You know, here I am crossing enemy lines again. And I've got a story for you. Uh, back in the yeah. mid-80s, I went to University of Michigan baseball camp. Now, but to be fair, Michigan State didn't have one. Bud Middaw, who was the head baseball coach at the time, oh, yeah. had great connections at that time. I learned from the best. Barry Larkin was one of the instructors who would go on to be a Hall of Famer. Chris Sabo was the third baseman for that Michigan team. He was there helping instruct. I learned how to catch pop-up fly balls as a catcher, all these drills. Alan Trammell from the Tigers came, shows how to properly hold a baseball, how to turn a double play. This was during the 1984 World Series championship season. And on Alan Trammell's day off, 
he comes to Michigan baseball camp in Ann Arbor to spend time with nine, 10, 11 year old punks like me. And one other guy wow. who took the time, Tom was Bo Schembechler. He showed up one day and it was like God himself had appeared on the field because we all knew who he was in that flat build Michigan camp with the sunglasses. And he's chawing away at Bud Midon. He says, I want to talk to these guys when you're done with them. And we go up the outfield. He has us all take a knee, men. And he gives us this maybe 10, 15 minute speech. Again, Tom, we're nine, 10, 11 years old. And he's instructing <laughs> us, you're Michigan men. And let me tell you what that means to be a Michigan man. You're here. You're here right now. You know, he's just, he goes through the whole spiel. You can just hear his voice still ringing in your ears. If you're a kid like me and what an impression that leaves. And then we stand in line, we get his autograph afterwards. And I loved Bo Schembechler. He was so kind and cordial and that tough love kind of thing. He reminded me a lot of my coach, Joe Bechtel, that I talk a lot about, but that's the kind of discipline and structure that makes champions. And we've talked about this at length, Tom, with Jim Brandstatter, who's amazing in his stelly, uh, storytelling capacity. I tell him this all the time. I grew up watching Michigan Replay with uh, Brandstatter and Bo Schembechler. And the, the personal level that he had a relationship with Bo, and Jim was there from the very beginning in those early 70s years where Bo was turning it around. And some guys left, and there was the saying, those who stay will be champions. That's such a foundational quote in Michigan football history. And again, I don't think it was in the FS1 documentary. Well, because when, when Bump Elliott was a, was a really good recruiter and, uh, when, when, and yeah, and they, his last team was eight and two, but it got blown out by Ohio state 50 to 14. And I can't remember, um, about bumps, uh, departure, if he was forced out or not, I was only 12 at the time, but when Bo came in there, that, that first spring practice, I mean, guys were, you know, just, dropping like flies. I mean, this guy was, you know, they're throwing up all that practice. It was like, there was like this, just this fallout of that. This guy's too tough uh, to get through that first spring practice. And uh, that's when that, that uh, up on the wall in the soffit at the, the old football building at the time, those who say will be champions. And then uh, I guess there was a little joke. The guys that quit the, yeah, the dope, but those that quit will be doctors, lawyers, and uh, CEOs and that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, so great. And I think the conversation that Tom and I have had right here about Divided We Stand is maybe as good or better than the documentary we, itself. We, we could have done a well, hell of a lot better job. I mean, Jack would have been in there with us. have been a great perspective and a few others. But they, including Devin Gardner, they it was kind of bizarre. Could not agree more. So, Tom, enjoy the holidays. May they be safe and merry for you and your family. And uh, always enjoy doing this program with you, as always. Well, you as well, Ryan. This has been such a, a rush, a, a fun thing that, you know, Great Lakes Divide. And, uh, hey, the, the back end of 2019 has been terrific. I'm really looking forward to 2020 with Big Ten basketball. Our two teams going at it the first Sunday in January. What fun lies ahead for both of us. And we'll have a preview of that game in our next updated podcast coming up for you and some best of reflective interviews looking back at the past. How about some conversations with John U. Bacon, Sean Windsor, the Detroit Free Press, Ed Sherman, an author of This Is Big. Plenty of those to look forward to and look back upon as you're sipping your eggnog and maybe it's loaded like mine will be in addition. <laughs> for, for Blue Billy Top Crawford, I'm Brian Schuling. Once again, our podcast is brought to you each and every time out by the Record Lounge in Rio Town. Our thanks to them, our thanks to you, and may you have a safe and happy and joyous Festivus, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate out there, and a Happy New Year to all of you as well. Just took my son, torture the man you can't